The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. The hour has come, and the enormity of what awaits Jesus is so overwhelming that he says, My soul is troubled. And Jesus' response to his own expression of inner turmoil shows that this emotion, this real and accurate dread will not cause him to turn from his purpose. And I use those words, real and accurate, to make the point that Jesus is not simply worrying about a possibility as we often do, but that his soul is troubled over what he he knows for certain is about to occur. And unlike us, his anxiety is not sinful because it is not an anxiety born of doubting God or struggling to control a circumstance. His soul is troubled not as a matter of unbelief. No, he is troubled because of what he believes, what he knows to be true about God. Jesus knows his purpose and he's submitted to what God will do. For us, worry is sinful. It's born of a lack of trust. In an ultimate sense, we either either don't believe that God is working for our good or we don't like the good that he's working. Jesus dreaded what God would do. But he trusted his Father and he prioritized the Father's glory. Jesus perfectly knew God's purpose and he knew his own purpose in it. And he submits with absolute confidence that God will punish our sins, which he's about to take upon himself. This is the reason for his troubled soul. Not sinful doubt, not a desire to control things, but a willing realization of what awaits him and a commitment to glorify God's justice and grace in his and through his suffering. And let's be clear, Jesus' soul is not troubled over the humiliation that awaits him. It's not being stripped naked and viewed publicly as a horrible criminal deserving of an execution, one in that day that was reserved for the worst of the worst criminal, and this is how most people would look upon him and assume him to be. His troubled soul was not over the upcoming beating that would leave him unrecognizable. It was not over the spikes piercing through his hands and his feet through nerves setting on fire, excruciating pain. He was not troubled over the sense of of suffocation, having to press up on his feet with nerve pain shooting through them to get a breath. It was not the thought of being spit on and mocked. Jesus' soul was not troubled over the torture. Many Christians throughout church history 
have faced worse pain than this with a supernatural calm. And you can read about so many situations, so many of those occasions in Fox's Book of Martyrs. Check that out. So see, their ability, these saints throughout church history, their ability to calmly face torture is not a comparative judgment on Jesus' troubled soul. Jesus wasn't failing or weak-minded where others, where others were not throughout church history. No, what Jesus was troubled over was the realization that he, the sinless one, the one who so loved his father and was happy to obey his commands, that he would take all of our ugliness all of our disobedience and rebellion, all of our shameful thoughts and desires, all of our lies and coveting and theft, our idolatry, all of the many ways in which we take God's name in vain, all of the slander and gossip and unforgiveness and envy, our sexual sins, our hatred, our cruel abuses. He would take all of this gross ugliness, these crimes against God upon himself, the one who knew no sin would become sin, and he knew exactly what his Father, who is holy and just, would do. This, this is what he dreaded. This is what brought anguish to his soul. We have no idea. We do not rightly understand the wrath of God. And we see this lack of understanding, especially in unbelievers who would rather take their chances with God, even if they think they'll ever stand before the judgment seat of God. If they do, they assume that he's not a just judge, that their sins are not really that bad after all compared to somebody, and that God who is love will forgive them, will, will just wink at their sin and maybe grade them on a curve. If you want to hear some of the casual ways in which people think about Judgment Day, take a listen to this podcast, Wretched Radio. On Wednesdays, he regularly witnesses on college campuses, and you can hear it in students, this uncaring indifference He confronts them with the reality that they will stand before God and will the judge find them guilty? And their their souls should be greatly troubled, but sadly most aren't troubled in the least. Jesus was troubled. Not because he was a sinner, not because he was guilty, but because he knew he would become guilty for us. He knew that he was about to become a curse for us, to hang on a tree. And he knew what a holy and just God would do. Oh, the dread, the terror of standing before the judge of all the universe who who sees us perfectly, who knows all of our thoughts, every sin, every thought. And Jesus took our 
this, our ugliness and shame upon himself. People don't realize or don't care that they've been bitten by a poisonous snake and there is an antidote, a cure being offered as a free gift. They're not concerned. They're not troubled by this. And this is the picture that we see on the cross when Jesus is speaking of being lifted up from the earth, drawing all people to himself. He speaks of the cross. He who became a curse for us. If we look to him in faith, we will be saved. And this reminds us of a really strange story in the Old Testament where God sent fiery serpents to the the complaining sinful Israelites, biting them, and many died. And we remember that God told Moses to make a fiery serpent, strange, and set it on a pole to lift it up in front of the people. And any who looked upon this serpent would be healed. Jesus is the serpent. This is a picture of him. The serpent is a curse, and Jesus becomes a curse for you, for us. The serpent bites us, and his poison courses through our veins, leading to death. And the remedy is the one who becomes this curse, taking our sin upon himself as we look to him in faith and are healed. The Father poured out his just wrath upon him, punishing our sin so that God would be both just and the justifier of those who have faith in him. So we read of Jesus' deep anxiety, his troubled soul, and the other gospel accounts tell us that he was so troubled he sweat great, he, his sweat was like great drops of blood. We read of it, and on a very small level, we relate because we know what it is to feel stress and anxiety, but this does not come close to the weight of his burden. One author says that the realization of the inexpressibly dreadful character of his impending descent into hell shook the human soul of Jesus to its very depths. Jesus knew. He experienced human suffering. And though his life and ministry is much more than a mere example to us, his faithful resolve is an example for us to consider. Yes, Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man. So where did he gain such resolve to face the most horrific reality possible? Jesus had an intimate knowledge of God. And he knew his purpose in life. Those are two things for us to consider. If we're to have resolve in our own suffering, our own troubled souls, we need to know who God is. And we need to know our purpose in life. And this can be true of us. The more that we know God, that we really know his character and his promises to us, the more we will be able to stand firm in times of temptation or situations where we might just take the easy way out. 
And the more we know God, the more we will understand our purpose in life, why we exist. Jesus perfectly knew God, and he knew his purpose, and he knew that the hour had finally come. Jesus knew that he was born to die. His very name given to Joseph by the angel who said, you shall, be, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus knew why he was born. Jesus didn't suddenly realize the Father's will at this point in time. No, he was submitted to the Father's will throughout his entire life. He was committed to the Father all along. And now as this hour comes, he is strengthened in his resolve by this same commitment. So for us, we must live a life of practiced commitment. We can't just expect to do the right thing in a moment of a particular trial. No, we must live a life with God's will continually in our minds, gaining strength under various trials with a long-practiced submission to God. And when I say God's will, I don't mean we should know something specific like Jesus knew. No, for us to know the will of God, it's a more general submission to His commands, the authority of His Word. It is God's will that you be sanctified, to look upon Him in faith, to live a life that glorifies Him, that reveals. Remember, to glorify means to, to reveal, to, to put on display so those around us will see that Jesus is our greatest treasure, that God is sovereign and worthy of our trust. Let me give you an example of what this means to my wife Jennifer and me. 27 years ago, it was God's will that, that our daughter Devin would survive an open heart surgery when she was three months old. It was also God's will six weeks later that her twin sister Lindsay would not survive her surgery. And of course, we were devastated. Gosh, 27 years ago, and it's still is hard. This particular suffering, I, rem I remember in the, in the moment of it, thinking, why would God do this? He, he actually did some miraculous things, and I, I don't use that word lightly, um, to bring about her birth. So many things that, that the doctors didn't think that the girls would be born. So he did some miraculous things to bring about her birth, and then he takes her, and, we're, and I'm thinking, why would, why would you do this? Well, several well-meaning friends reached out, and some suggested that, you know, God might use this to save someone, uh, that we would have an opportunity to share the gospel. And to be honest with you, I didn't like that answer very much, because God can use words. You can use his word, someone sharing the gospel. He doesn't need to take my daughter to save someone. So I didn't like that answer. God can, um, other friends said, you know, maybe God will give you a ministry to, to um, minister to people who've gone through similar things. And I didn't like that answer either. I didn't think it was worth it 
maybe my mindset was not. But ultimately, I did, we did come to a conclusion of what God's will was in this that I hold to to this day. And that is God's purpose in doing what he did. And this may not sound very flashy to you. Uh, he did what he did so that we might glorify him. And that's it. And that's worth it. Because that's why you exist. And that's why I exist. The first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? Giving the answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Our chief end, our reason for existing in each and every circumstance of life is to glorify God. And when we are satisfied with him, in times like that, that reveals something. That puts something on display. Not how strong we are, but how great he must be. It brings him glory. There are many, um, there may be some fruit that comes, but ultimately, ultimately, there is no greater reason, there is no greater purpose for your suffering than this. Your disability, your heartache, your physical pain, your reaction to injustice or abuse or anything, any circumstance in life. Don't, when you are suffering with what you perceive to be um, lesser than someone else's, here's how people typically suffer. I feel better about mine because it's not as bad as so-and-so's. You're missing an opportunity to glorify God. That's how the world suffers. Your suffering is handed to you by, the good, by your good God giving you an opportunity to glorify him. Don't waste it. You're given an opportunity to put God on display for all to see. So your suffering is custom designed for you. Use it for the glory of God. That is its purpose. That is your purpose. God must be we want people to look at your reaction in your suffering and respond, wow, God must be really beautiful. He must be a great treasure. They're not shaking their fist at him in anger. They're worshiping him. They're loving him. Instead of shaking our fist at God because he took our daughter from us, instead of doing what the world might expect us to do, to conclude that God somehow failed us, that he didn't come through for us, instead of this, we worship him and cling to him and love him and trust him for today and tomorrow. This is what it means to glorify God. There really doesn't need to be anything else. If someone gets saved or you minister to someone, that is icing on the cake, and it's wonderful. But that is not the main purpose. So Jesus, he knows he was born to die. And that his time has come. And yes, we were certainly a part of the joy that was set before him as he endured the cross. But Jesus tells us that there is a greater, 
a higher motive than you, than me. We don't read that his motive is me above all else. No, what we read, the purpose Jesus communicates is, Father, glorify your name. James Boyce writes, to glorify God is his chief end. He will not shrink from following whatever way the Father chooses to have the Son glorify him. Sorry if that ruins a popular song for you, but Jesus' highest motive and purpose in going to the cross was not you. Yes, there is an amazing, personal, particular love for you. He knew you personally as he went to the cross, but his highest motive was the glory of his Father. It glorifies the Father's mercy and grace and love that he would send his own Son to ransom you and adopt you and love you as his own. Remember that what we brought to the equation was not something beautiful. Our contribution for Jesus to glorify God's mercy and grace and love was our ugliness, our sin. This this was our part. It glorifies God to justly punish Jesus in your place. God is glorified at the cross. Unresolved sins of the past are dealt with. God's perfect justice is vindicated. And His gracious love for us, His grace is lifted up, put on display to be praised. Jesus, His overwhelming desire for this, to glorify God, is what strengthened His troubled soul in the shadow of the cross. As Richard Phillips put it, He literally loved God's glory more than his own soul. And thus he found strength to overcome the infinite suffering of the cross. Thus he prays, Father, glorify your name. And then a jarring response is boomed from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. God was glorified at Jesus' birth as the angels sang glory to God in the highest. God was glorified in Jesus' perfect, sinless life of obedience to the law. God was glorified in Jesus' ministry as he displayed the kingdom of God through his teaching and life and miracles. But Jesus especially, primarily, is about the ultimate purpose of glorifying the Father's justice and mercy and wisdom and love at the cross. And oh, what a, what a sad contrast com- comparing as we look to the accomplishments of man throughout human history, great architectural achievements that just decay or burn in a day great military conquests that end in death, destruction, and an eventual fall replaced by another empire or another fleeting evil dictator. And sadly, as much of the, much of the glory of our day is associated with stars of sports and entertainment and business, 
one replaces another and people's flaws and sins are ultimately revealed. They all come to an end. They are fleeting. But the the glory of the Father is accomplished by Jesus at the cross and this glory has lasted throughout all of church history and will go on for all eternity. It will never end. People seek glory by attaining or ascending some kind of throne or empire or championship, but Jesus achieves glory as he ascends the cross. Jesus said, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then, when God thunders in response, Jesus explains, this glory will bring about two things. It will bring about the judgment of the world, and it will cast out Satan. One way that the cross of Christ judges the world is by revealing the sinfulness of sin. Sin is something we tend to wink at. It's not a casual realization that says, well, nobody, here's how people tend to respond. Well, nobody's perfect. Certainly God doesn't expect me to be perfect, does he? Isn't he supposed to be loving and understanding? Yes. Loving. So much so that he will not sweep crimes under the carpet. So much so that people's crimes and abuses, the justice that everyone wants, what drives you crazy more than anything else, it's injustice. It's seeing people seemingly get away with something. And it's dealt with, ultimately, at the cross. The extreme nature of the cross speaks to the sinfulness, the ugliness of sin. It is so gross, it is so offensive that it requires God's perfect Son to die in a cruel in a humiliating manner. It's that, uh, it's, it's that bad. Sin is that bad. Even more so that he would bear the terrible wrath of God. The world thinks of sin as a small thing. It is dismissed as dysfunction or just the result of a, a bad environment. But the evil actions of the cross show us that sin itself is evil. The cross exposes the evil of the world's sin. It communicates a judgment to the world. And another way in which the cross of Christ judges the world is that it shows people's attitudes toward Jesus. From God's perspective, the cross was a sacrifice for our sins, but from man's perspective, what is it? the eventual outcome of what they're plotting to do to kill him because he threatens their power and their positions of authority and we see their hatred of him at the cross. The people had certain expectations and when Jesus didn't give them what they thought they wanted, what they thought they needed, they rejected him and yelled crucify him. So if we really want a clear picture of human nature and the world, we simply need to remember 
what the world did to Jesus. The one person. Think of it. The one person in all of human history who lived a sinless life, who loved people, who taught what was good, who did what all these miraculous signs, who healed people. And all of this giving evidence to his claims. And this world murdered him. Jesus anticipated this saying, now is the judgment of the world. And not only does the cross judge the world, but it also serves to overthrow the ruler of the world, namely Satan. And the irony of it, the irony of it all is that the cross, think of it, from Satan's perspective, it seemed like his greatest triumph. The Messiah is put to death by the will of his own people, and this, ironically, accomplishes the end of Satan's reign. Satan's reign, Satan reigns through sin, and he lies to people about the goodness of God, and he controls them by guilt, but Jesus removes our sin, and he pays the debt of our guilt. When believers come to Christ to receive forgiveness, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to indwell us and deliver us from Satan's power. And so what seemed like Satan's greatest accomplishment, it served only to cast Satan out. God's glory at the cross judges the world and it casts out Satan, but more positively, it draws sinners to God's forgiving grace. Jesus said, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So the cross not only glorifies God's justice in punishing our sins upon Jesus, but it also glorifies his power to draw people into fellowship with him at the, with himself. The cross is the greatest display of God's love in the world. Here's what Jeremiah Burroughs writes, Behold, the infinite love of God to mankind and the love of Jesus Christ, that rather than God see the children of men to perish eternally, would send his Son to take our nature upon him and thus suffer such dreadful things. Herein God shows his love. Oh, what a powerful, mighty, drawing, efficacious meditation this should be to us. And in and of itself, this truth, this message that Jesus would willingly die on the cross to save us from the wrath of God, it lands on people who instead of responding with awe and amazement, they respond with indifference. This truth of what God has done, this alone, it should cause people to love God, but it doesn't. Sin blinds us. And apart from the power of God and drawing people to himself, apart from the work of his Holy Spirit who takes out a heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, who makes the blind to see, who who draws us, or more literally in the Greek, drags us to Jesus, to salvation, if not for this sovereign work 
we would remain like the rest of the world, indifferent. And even this, this work of the Spirit, it is secured for us at the cross. Zechariah prophesied, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him who, whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. Unless the spirit is poured out, we will not mourn the horror of the cross. Unless the Spirit is poured out, we will not seek God's mercy. We will not desire His forgiveness when we, are, when we are presented with the good news of the cross. The application, an application to the trouble of Jesus' soul, I want to consider lastly how we might respond when our souls are troubled. First, I want us to always remember, I think it's a great benefit to our troubled soul to remember the suffering of Jesus. Remember that Jesus suffered for you. The suffering we really want to avoid, of course, is the suffering of hell, and it should give us great peace to remember that Jesus took this suffering upon himself for you. Our troubled soul, it's only temporary. And the wrath he endured to give you hope for all of eternity, let this remembrance settle you and give you peace. The Jews didn't expect this kind of Savior. They asked, lift it up, who is this Son of Man? And Isaiah described that he shall be high and lifted up and he shall be exalted. But Isaiah went on to say, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. His soul makes an offering for guilt. Jesus took this suffering for you. And because of it, one day, because of this, one day, you will no longer suffer. So don't have wrong expectations. Jesus, he didn't promise an earthly life of ease. Instead, he said that there would be tribulation, that we need to pick up our cross and follow him. He suffered, and so his followers make sense that we would suffer as well. His suffering, though, it not only buys you a, a hope of an eventual life where there is no suffering, but it also is an example to us while we suffer. We're not alone in our suffering. We're following him. And there's joy in the realization of our own, of this hope. So remember the suffering of Jesus. And remember that, this is maybe a funny way to think of it, but you you only have this life. You only have this short time to suffer and thus only a short time to glorify God in this particular way. When you um, move on to glory, there will be no more suffering. There will be no more ability to glorify God in the ways that you have now every day. 
There's purpose. So that's what that tells us. There is great purpose in your suffering. Second, when our souls are troubled, we need to follow Christ's example in looking to the Father as he looked to the Father in prayer. Paul tells us in the book of Philippians, my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Think of Jesus' life of prayer, the sinless God-man relied upon his Father. He cried out to him for help and was refreshed and strengthened through his prayer life. Jesus, the least needy human who ever lived, recognized his need of prayer. Prayer is not, we often think of it as a, sometimes sadly, as a last resort. Prayer is not a last resort. It is not for those who can't make it happen on their own. Prayer rightly recognizes that God is sovereign over all. And everything that we have and everything that we need comes to us from the providential and good hand of God. And this gift of prayer we should not take for granted. The supply of our needs comes to us as a result of the riches in Christ Jesus. This gift of prayer was bought for us at the cross. It's his riches to us. It's his example for us to follow. Lastly, when our souls are troubled, we should follow Jesus' example by resolving to suffer for the glory of God. Resolving to suffer for the glory of God. Even this, even this is not about us. Our suffering comes to us from the hand of God. And He promises to withhold no good thing from us. He intends it for our good and His glory. So the greater goal is not remove this from me, but God be glorified in this. Use me for your glory. And I don't say that to to say that we shouldn't ask for the thorn to be removed or for healing. Of course we should. We should We should pray and cry out to God and ask for help and ask for relief. And he can be glorified in in that as well, in healing us. So there's nothing wrong with that. But God can, God ultimately is glorified as we trust him to do what's best, as we submit to him. And oftentimes his best is through suffering. After all, we received his best through the suffering of the cross. And we know that our growth comes about through times of suffering. He is lifted up. He is put on display. Come back to that thought. People are watching. And you have an opportunity to glorify God, which means to reveal how great He is. Reveal who He is. To put on display so others look through your life and they conclude, wow, he must be a great treasure. This is why you exist. This is your purpose. Let's pray. Father, we come to you because Jesus was lifted up from the earth. Because your spirit has drawn us to yourself. Because Jesus 
he understood the purpose for which he was born. That he was resolved to fulfill this purpose. Coming to glorify your name as he, as he died for us. Father, we're thankful for this truth. That we cannot, a truth that we cannot comprehend what it means to bear your wrath. We cannot relate to this level of expected dread that Jesus had, the trouble of his soul as he awaited the cross. And we can only conclude what a hero, what a savior, what a friend. Father, help us to be like Jesus, to prioritize your glory, to live lives that show others your great worth, to speak of you and worship you with all that we have. So we agree intellectually, hypothetically, that you are, you are the greatest of all treasures. But Lord, we need your help to truly believe this and to live in ways that show this to be true. Help us to live for your glory, to have great joy in doing so. We praise you for your glorious grace, and we ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Now, by the power of God's Spirit, may you glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's so good to be together. God bless you.